right. So let's go ahead and get started. Thanks for being on here this morning. Welcome to our Market Pulse uh, podcast with Matt. I'm going to jump right in and get this thing going. So let's start with our basics. I'm in uh, sunny California, so you can tell I'm in my hotel room this morning. The show must go on, and I've got some really exciting stuff to go over with you guys. So let's do a quick review, and then we will get our disclosure out of the way. I'm going to bring this up really quickly so you guys can see the exciting stuff that we've got uh, going on today. And uh, then we jump right into it. So we've got a, a slew of topics uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to first go into a kind of a macro approach and look at some of the data. We're going to talk about this marriage chart and uh, how marriages are not keeping up in the U.S. and the impact that's going to have long term on the country. And then we've got these two wars and a lot of the updates around the war uh, in Ukraine, but also the bombing and airstrikes in Gaza. What does lowering rates look like for you in 2024? Kevin O'Leary's take on this hedge fund bill to ban hedge funds from buying real estate and the sell-off over the next 10 years, the impact it might have on the real estate market. And then I'm doing this new fun thing called Money Mishaps, where we look at some uh, not-so-smart individuals or plays that have happened in the market, and uh, you'll get my take on kind of... <laughs> what that looks like. And then last but not least, we'll do our trade review. So let's go ahead and jump in. I'm going to pull up our video here and we'll get started. And then we've got our uh, risk disclosure to keep my attorneys happy and keep this channel going obviously like and subscribe guys to my channels on youtube tiktok and instagram uh there you can keep up to date on live information that's coming in and uh this is kind of an eclectic uh gathering or thought of what i've gathered over the week including and not including some of my shorts that go out uh through the week so let's go ahead and start we brought up this topic around this marriages in the U.S. And I want to talk to you about this because this is a big deal. A lot of us are kind of ignoring some of the signs here. And I want to show you this image really quick and explain what it is because it's shocking uh, what is going on, the incentives, non-incentives to get married, and really the impact that this is going to have on our economy, uh, especially for the next generation coming in. So this chart is pretty simple. It's percentage of Americans married by birth decade. And you can see people in the 40s, it's like close to 100% of Americans married. You, you start to get into the yellows uh, at age, and this is at age 50, by the way. You're starting to get to like, uh, you know, 90%-ish. You start to see a drop in the 60s, pretty big drop in the 70s. People born in the 80s, that's my generation, are at like below 80%. And then you have this group of people uh, <laughs> born in the 90s and before, and you can see that it's already tabled off and even kind of gone into a decline. Now, this is a pretty big deal because based on the graph and based on like this like slope, 
it does not look like this is going to be something that keeps up in the future. It may even have a drop off. So people that are coming into like their ages close to 30, we're not seeing any marriages. We're seeing like less than 40%, close to 30%. And I want to talk to you about the impact of this. Like what will happen in the future if this continues? Well, there's obviously some problems in this country uh, right now that's causing these issues. And I would say uh, it's there's really nothing similar. We, we've really no, never seen anything similar in this country in terms of like a comparative or uh, something that's happened in the past. And you can see that. You know, we had the 80s, my generation kind of slowed down around marriage, but this 90s generation is not interested. And I think it's a combination of affordability in homes. People don't want to have kids because, frankly, they can't even afford to have their own house. There is a, a cultural shift around marriage and men and women being financially independent on their own, although we live in one of the hardest times to probably ever do that. And there's also, um, there's kind of this, this, like, it's not my job to take care of myself attitude with the younger generation. Like, and, and, you know, I can, I can kind of get it. It's like, we could say in the older generations, myself included, you know, I kind of have this older, uh, indoctrination. You can say around money in the country, we say, well, they should go out and get a job and work hard just like everyone else. Well, They've tried that, and when they go out and do it, there's no American dream. There's no white. There's no small house with a white picket fence as an option to go work hard for something because, frankly, that's not possible. Affordability in this country is at the worst level it's ever been, and until we can create a carrot for the generation to go out and work for, until we can create this you know, internal banking system that the American dream provided for most Americans— there's not much incentive. And so the younger generation is really just resigned. They've gotten completely resigned around uh, the future for themselves in, in terms of collecting assets. And so I think this is a reflection of both uh, what the market has done and has impacted social norms, but also sh social norms. Let's talk about how this will impact the future. Well, if we don't have babies. If we don't have a growing population, we have a shrinking, typically, GDP. Now, some will argue that in the next 10 years, AI is going to compensate for that, that we'll have uh, generative AI and robotic structures using generative AI that may actually wipe out a lot of the workforce. And so this won't, population won't be a metrics. It won't be a, a data point for uh, nominal growth and for growth in the country. And so th this may not, actually matter that much in the next 10 years. However, this generation will be the one that suffers the most, uh, meaning from an asset, like uh, an eclectic asset gathering. They're, they're going to be the poorest generation that our country has ever seen. And the wealth disparity will continue to increase, meaning that we'll have uh, a larger wage gap, a larger uh, separation of the middle class and a higher level of uh, high-end earners and a much higher level of low-end earners. So we're really whittling out the middle class even more with this data. And frankly, you know, can, we can make the argument that they should just do it the traditional way, but frankly, there are a lot of challenges around why they're not. And this is a big long-term problem that we will see play out over the next five to 10 years. So uh, 
really interesting data point. And I'm someone who got married at a very young age, definitely uh, not on this chart. I was in my my early 20s when I uh, was in my first marriage. And so obviously I, I didn't follow this. I'm part of the 80s uh, group, but this is like ever married. Like there's a, probably over 50% of that generation that will never even touch marriage, let alone get married and then maybe step out for some reason. All right, so there's the marriage macro uh, look. I want to also give you some macro looks at what's going on in the world because it has large uh, impact on our economy, but also global economics and the dollar. And so I want to just show you really quickly without spending too much time on this. I want to show you what's going on in Israel right now. The news isn't really, it's not a highlight topic that much. This isn't something that uh, we're seeing a lot of being blasted right now. We are heading into a um, we are he heading into an election year, and I think there might be some biases there setting up the next presidential election. I'm not going to get tinfoil hat on you guys, but what's happening right now in Gaza is a tragedy. The death count is uh, catastrophic for the size of the the region compared to Ukraine and data is showing right now that at least 20,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been reported killed since Israel began bombing the territory. And this is very, you got to get how recent this is. Like this is like just came out right out of the gate. And so I'm hoping for some resolution, not just because of um, the potential harm and generational disparity that this will create towards different classes and different um, regions in that area. But I'm also concerned about the potential terror threats that this may create in the future and the hatred towards uh, or the is this Islamophobia that will increase in the U.S. and and possibly this anti-Semitism that will also increase in the U.S. because of something that's happening, you know, clear across the pond uh, in another region of the world. And so, will this have impact on the U.S.? Absolutely. Has it already? Yes. Uh, we have sympathizers on both sides, and really, this is just a tragedy altogether. And I I really hope at some point we can come together on this because there will be economic, not just for economic reasons. I mean. To have this many people die uh, really is a tragedy, especially children, families, women um, on both sides that really had no, they, they had nothing in the battle. They weren't active participants or even uh, had had a bias one way or the other. They're just out there trying to live their lives and yet they're innocent bystanders to this. So tragedy uh, for sure in Gaza. The war in Ukraine is still happening and all this uh, war in Gaza right now has kind of distracted us from this topic. But I want to show you kind of what's going on in Ukraine right now. And I want to give you the highlights. This was a really great article uh, done by The Guardian. And this summary right here really wraps up nicely kind of what's been happening uh, in Ukraine. And I'm just going to read some of the highlight topics, these little bold sections, just to give you an idea of like where we're currently standing. And then I'll give you some of my thoughts. But more than two dozen Russian drones were targeted uh, towards Ukraine's capital. 
and m- most of them were shut down. 24 of the 28 were actually uh, shot down, I believe. And Russia, Russia may, uh, Russia may s- sever diplomatic ties with the U.S. Um, I think that's to be expected. Russia will never leave in peace any country that seizes its assets. This this UN expansion or this uh, NATO expansion. This was brought up uh, actually in an interview where Biden and Zelensky were in the U.S. taking questions. And by the way, that was a major flop interview. I mean, they were throwing him not just soft. They were, and I'm talking about the president. They were not only throwing him softballs, they were throwing him dodgeballs and he was missing. Um, even Zelensky looked completely frustrated at the president's inability to answer questions. But anyways, you could watch that interview. It was embarrassing for this country. Uh, Russia will never leave in peace any countries that seize its assets. This is this is just a stance that we're seeing that they're taking. Uh, the Dutch government will send an initial 18 F-16 jets to Ukraine. So we're seeing lots of foreign support now outside of the U.S. into Ukraine. Russia is ready to swiftly respond and kindly to Washington's deploying short and medium-range missiles in Europe and Asia-Pacific region. Kremlin accused of Wall Street Journal of publishing a pulp fiction on Friday. Uh, Moscow and Washington were still engaged in sensitive negotiations after prisoner exchange. The United States said that on Friday it would place sanctions on foreign banks that supported the Russian war, and it goes on and on and on. These are kind of the highlights, but we are still, I think the takeaway is we are still in a very active, non- uh, I would say this is a war that is not de-escalating. It's escalating. And we're starting to see supporters coming in with aid really on both sides. And Russia is really teaming or gearing up to finish this thing off. They are not uh, backing off in any way, shape, or form. And wars just have impact globally uh, on the economy, especially if we're not the ones in them. So if we're in a war and we win a war, it's actually really great for the economy. In fact, every war we've ever won has begun one of the greatest economic lifts uh, during that, you know, sometimes the last two, three decades. But this isn't our war to win. And so we are we are not going to be left with the prizes, uh, so to speak, but really the rubble and the debt uh, to cover our our really our allies back. And, you know, that is part of our petrol dollar uh, agreement that we will protect trade internationally. And then we have you know, a lot of these NATO and UN agreements that we're part of also. But at some point, we've really got to look at, you know, we're, we've got people starving here in our country. You know, we have unrest uh, in this country. We've got a lack of unity in this country. And there's a lot of resources we could be using in this country to really take care of us. And our uh, debt, our debt, like our payment on our national debt is a th- is like right at the same amount as our military annual spend. And so it kind of gives you an idea how much money, how much waste we really put out there uh, in the name of war. And if we could, I know this is really an altruistic viewpoint, but if there was a way that we could just stop this war stuff, the way GDP and the markets would react would be uh, phenomenal. And it would, it would raise, it would literally raise our buying power every person on this planet's buying power across the globe and so war is really tough on the wallet because there really is no gdp in it 
it's 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 theft in a way right it's the vikings going out and pillaging in a way there's really no major lift economically because there's always a loser so having said that we that gives you kind of that macro look i want to talk to you about excuse me for a second I want to talk to you about lower interest rates. So uh, we're going to take a pause from like showing you screens and I want to just do a really quick dive and I'm going to give you a couple topics that I would be taking notes on for probably the largest economic event that's happened all year. And it was, it was, we talked about it a little bit last week, but I'm going to emphasize it again because it's that important. And that's the lower rates for 2024 and the impact uh, that it will have going into the future. Um, but before I do hit you guys with this this highlight topic, I want to go into our psychology piece uh, for the day where we're going to talk about and get kind of our head screwed on around our belief systems uh, around the poor and around the rich. So I'm going to bring this up really quick. And we're going to kick off my psychology piece. And then we'll get into the hottest topic, the most important news piece I have uh, for our audience and for my listeners and our listeners uh, today. So let's go ahead and jump into this. So just to give you this psychology piece, and I'm, I keep mixing this up to kind of get an idea of like what works, what doesn't work. Um, I want to talk to you about the, well, first off, why I'm doing this. Our psychology, our belief system around money is just completely upside down. And I've identified over 20 different beliefs that the rich have, that the poor or the not rich, let's call them, uh, don't have. And they're very, very clear. And in, it's like you can have some but not the other. And this might be one that like you already have. But if you have this one and you don't have the others, it's like no wonder. Like you just can't have a missing piece. You can't have a missing cog in the wheel, right? You. If there's a gear out of place, the car breaks down. And so it's really important that we get our heads screwed on straight when it comes to money, especially if you're trading, especially if you're investing, because if you have the wrong belief system underneath it, the motivation, the way that you'll act inside of certain events will radically impact your wealth and your long-term growth when it comes to money. So this one is called average people don't think they have enough time to get rich. So this is really around the concept of time where rich people know that they can multiply how much time they have with money. And so I'm going to hit the bullet points and then we'll talk about this just a little bit. But average people believe they will lose the things they love or won't feel fulfilled if they pursue this money thing, if they start like getting interested in watching money. In fact, I had this uh, friend of mine that I was on a call with and I was like going back and forth between work. I just got done with a, a client earlier that day. And she asked me, she's like, are you working right now? I was like, yeah, like I'm, yes, I'm working. But it's not, to me, it's not work. Like this is, this is a value add to me because I know that this time that I spend tonight putting together this plan, helping develop this thing for the next day, that this is going to give me more freedom around my time, that this is what gives me the ability to travel when I want to travel, to take time off when I want to take time off, to buy the things that I want on a whim, 
to eat wherever I want to eat, right? And so there's kind of this backwards belief around time, whereas like she wasn't doing anything different either, right? This friend of mine, uh, she was just watching TV, right? Where my time was being invested into something that really, one, I see the value in, and two, is going to keep paying me over and over and over again in the future. Now, they believe that the pursuit of money will come at a cost of not spending quality time with family and friends. And I think that's the weird trade-off is that we think by doing this, by by sacrificing, you could say, time to have more money, earn more money, uh, work towards more money, that sometime, somehow we're going to be sacrificing the things we love the most. And we have this really interesting relationship with family and friends where we like collectively believe this belief and then we push it on each other to shame each other. Like, oh, well, you know, hey, come hang out with me. Oh, no, sorry, I'm working or I'm doing this thing. Oh, well, you shouldn't do that. And then all of a sudden we make money bad. You see it? All of a sudden, like our friends reinforce it. And a lot of that might be environmental also, like how we change our environment. And that's actually a totally another belief that we'll go over in the future. Uh, but there is kind of this like dance that we do with each other, with our family and our friends around how we spend our time and how much of it is being spent on like gathering riches and developing and growing wealth and generational wealth. Now, the rich know that, that the level of quality they spend uh, with their friends and family multiplies more with money. So this is kind of a different concept that the rich know that the level of quality, like it's not, I've always said this, it's not about how much time, it's about the quality of time, right? Like how many times have you guys just spent time with people and it just, you have really no great memories around it. It was just like, yeah, like mediocre, but the rich don't do that. They, they're. In fact, it's like the quality, the level of quality in the shorter amount of time is so high that it fills them up. It's like a, you know, it, it's just like a glass of water. And in order for your, you know, this sector of your life to feel fulfilled, your social side of your life to feel fulfilled, you've got to fill up, you know, the cup all the way to the top. Well, the rich do that. They're just way more intentional, just like they're way more intentional when it comes to money, when they actually meet with their family, their friends, which... I'm doing right now. I'm down here in California. I'm going to spend, like, turn off everything, be with my family for a few days. Uh, it will be very intentional. And I will and I will be very intentional to create very long-lasting memories, having deep connection, good conversations with those people, because it's not just every day I get to do that. And so the quality actually makes a huge difference over quantity, is how I would say that. Uh, and they know that money affords them the ability to hire help and do even more. So... When you start to actually have more, your ability to get help, to help you with the things around the house, the time that you would spend cleaning, vacuuming, making food, making preparations, you don't need to do that anymore. And you can actually help other people by hiring them to help you. And so this is this is really a belief that we have way upside down. Again, to reiterate, bring it back to the, the topic, the topic is that average people think they don't have enough time to get rich, where rich people know they can multiply how much time they have with money. So there's our psychological belief. I'm going to swing us back in to our uh, conversation about rate hikes, uh, or and in this case, rate drops finally. Now, we haven't had anything yet, and we haven't have seen 
uh, actual rate drops, but there's a prediction of three rate drops in the next year. And we're already seeing mortgage rates react to this. In fact, I saw for the first time a 3% mortgage rate, uh, and I've never seen this before. Now, this isn't like your traditional mortgage, but just the fact that it's signaling lower rates right now uh, comes with implications. And let's just look at like the housing market. So let's say rates do actually drop in 2024. What's going to happen to the housing market? Well, and I have another topic that ties into this, but let's say all things stay the same except rates drop. If we have rates drop into next year, mortgage rates are also going to drop, meaning that we're going to see uh, short-term mortgages, 15, 30-year even, start to drop down, which makes uh, buying, purchasing power higher. And frankly, a lot of my friends, a lot of people I know have been waiting. They've been kind of sitting on the sidelines, not because of the housing prices, but because of the housing rates. And so if you can buy more for less, if you can get a smaller payment and get more house, what's going to happen to the market that already has a very, very limited supply, right? We're still, even though like supply has been growing and time on the market for homes has been growing, we're still in like this lull of like the last three years, we have less inventory of homes in the U.S. than we've ever had. Lower rates, I, I just don't see how it doesn't increase uh, purchasing price or, or demand for the housing market. Now, I want to tie in another factor that's uh, really, really important to understand. And that's just take a minute and ask yourself between you and your friends, how many of you have put your savings account, your checking account into like a money market account or into a high yield checking account? You know, something that you're getting four and a half percent or more on. You know, it's like, I would, I would imagine most of you have done that. Most of you shouldn't. And it just isn't wise to have a bunch of money sitting in a checking account when you can get 5% on it uh, a year in a money market account for locking it up for three to six months. So what happens when that stops? And by the way, it's already priced in. If you go to your bank and you look at their chart on like money market accounts and how much they'll pay in what time periods, they are paying the most for the shortest period of time. And a lot of it has to do with these rate drops that are coming. So let's say next year, you can only get 3%, 5 to 3. How many people are going to pull out their money? And by the way, there's tr there's over a trillion dollars that have moved into these money market accounts. What happens when that money pulls out and it's sitting in people's bank accounts now? Well, they do one of two things. They look for other places to get a good return. And where are they going to get that? The stock market or the real estate market? And so I think we are going to see a surge uh, in volatility uh, in the in the stock market for sure, meaning new people coming in with new, not necessarily new money, but old money that was allocated into safer places. I think we're going to see assets go up in value quite a bit because a lot of this money was going into these high-yield savings accounts, which is frankly the bond market. <laughs> and we got to keep an eye on that. What's going to happen to government bonds and the demand for government bonds? Are we going to have to start buying our bonds back uh, in the U.S. again at a higher rate? And how is this going to impact lending? Well, we will see lending loosen up. If you're having a hard time getting a loan, this should make things and the lending practices lighter. And generally, 
from an economic standpoint, we should see the economy react to this in a positive way uh, when rates start to drop. Now, why, why is all this happening? Well, along with the rate pause, which the market reacted in a positive way to, there's this other side that I think is really important also that was very, very lightly touched on, and that's what the Fed's projection of GDP growth is in next year. And GDP, uh, guys, is gross, gross domestic product, like how much output this economy brings out. And they are actually predicting one of the lowest growth years in 2024 than we've seen in the last decade. And so when you have a low growth year, but lots of printing, lots of inflation that happened in the past, you're going to enter a recession. You're going to have things get tight and hard for people, especially in the lower uh, income brackets. So there's a lot of strings here. This is a big web. And so navigating next year along with an election, which by the way, most elections uh, are negative for the stock market. You've got all these interesting variables happening. 2024, guys, it's like, Put on your hat and be ready to ride the roller coaster because it's going to feel really fun sometimes, right? It's like going up, a little bit of fear, and then coming down and we're coming out of the, the loop and it's like, yay, but there's going to be a lot of screaming. There's going to be a lot of uh, fear. And I would say just like, hold on, enjoy the ride, but like stay tuned because it's going to be changing. It's going to be volatile. And I would say uh, there's going to be some black swans in there. You know, we've already talked about some of the highlighted ones with the war in Gaza and this Islamophobia, anti-Semitism that's at rising at all-time highs. I talked to you guys about the FBI warning last week. Uh, there's going to be some black swans next year. And so watch for those. There will be opportunity behind them. But more importantly, you want to keep your assets safe and the things that you have already in place uh, protected. And that's what I'm interested in the most. Now... Let's talk about this. This might be one of the black swans, actually. Let's let me show you this article. Uh, Kevin O'Leary came out publicly on this, and I actually agree with Kevin on this uh, standpoint. But what happened? What is happening is blowing my mind. The government. I know that people think the government can solve all problems, but you are the government. Like just to be clear, like so everyone understands this when they say. Well, someone needs to fix this. Well, you are the someone. Like, really, you're a part of the someone. And so I, I kind of get frustrated when, especially the younger generation doesn't get this. They're like, well, the government needs to fix this for us. Or you know, wait till I show you my uh, my my uh, silly video that I pulled out today. It was actually from a younger person. But the, the lack of understanding how the financial markets work uh, is laughable. And... Kevin O'Leary gets this, this bill that they're going to try to pass, which probably will pass, by the way, just knowing how the, like where we are standing politically right now in the U.S. and how people get votes and how the public generally feels like, yes, the sentiment is affordability is out of control. But to not allow the open market to go out, to go in and buy opportunities is ridiculous. And so Kevin O'Leary's, is urging the government not to get involved in this housing market uh, issue. There's a new bill that would ban hedge funds from buying homes. And he says this is very, very bad and destructive 
I would agree, but let me kind of give you a snapshot of what this what is going on. So through the pandemic and all this M2 printing, all this money that went out into the market, uh, a lot of hedge funds started up and started gathering uh, funds from individuals to go buy properties as investments. Uh, investments both for like long-term holds, but also for rental, vacation properties, and so forth. And in some markets like Vegas, some areas, 30% of the homes there were bought by hedge funds. 30%. So I want you to just sit with this. And this bill, by the way, not only will ban hedge funds in the future uh, from buying real estate, uh, residential real estate, but it also will force them to sell it over the next 10 years. Now, let's say this passes next year. Let's say that this bill goes through and hedge funds are going, we need in order to like, there's this future date coming that we've got to get rid of all of our stuff in the next 10 years. What would you do as a hedge fund? The market's at an all-time high, prices are at an all-time high, and your legs have just gotten cut out from underneath you. Would you take the risk of a lower market in the future, knowing that every other hedge fund is also going to have to sell? No, you would do a massive sell-off. You would say, well, that was fun. Dust your hands off. Take any profits as you possibly could. Likely, the people who invested with you after seeing this bill would be like, get me my money out right now. And so there's gonna there would be a mass exodus in hedge in hedge fund owned properties. Now, a lot of people who don't own homes right now are cheering, going, "Well, that that sounds amazing." You know, that would mean house prices would drop; uh, it would come down to more reasonable, affordable levels. And the answer is yes, absolutely, it would. Uh, however, how fast that would happen if this clicked in would would be catastrophic we would see probably a tip-off in the housing market that would crash the market because, guys, we've had people buy homes last year, the year before that, the year before that. And frankly, I just I just bought a house, actually, after the, seeing the rate pause. So just to give you my sentiment on the housing market, I literally just bought a house. I've been renting, and a lot of you guys know this. I was renting a beautiful home, timing the market, and I just bought uh, in fact, I, I should close before the first of the year because of the rate pause. I just don't see how in, in my area that these prices are going to continue to go up. Uh, there's just there's a massive supply problem. Anyways, that's my own sentiment. Do your own homework, right? Um, got a great deal on this house. The person I bought it from, uh, the previous buyer, their financing failed. And the owner got divorced, you know, tragedy uh, among the, the previous owner. But aside from that, bought for more than what I just bought this house for. I got a, uh, what would I even say, probably a almost 10% discount, almost 10% discount on this house compared to the price they bought it two years ago. So that gives you the reality of the market right now. Add this piece to it where hedge funds are now selling off and we start to see a massive drop. What's going to happen to the people who've bought in the last five years and have 30-year mortgages? We'll see the negative equity uh, kick in like we did in 2008, uh, that 2006-2008 period uh, where the housing market crashed, topped, and then started dropping. 
And frankly, when people don't have equity in their homes, what do they do? Or definitely their investment properties, what do they do? They just hand it back to the bank. And so this could trigger a mass exodus in homes that were bought at the peak. And so really the way that the best way to do this is to keep things going sideways for a while. The best thing the feds could do, the best thing that our politicians could do is to create a market that goes sideways, not up, definitely not down, but sideways. And if you look at M2, we're looking at probably over the next three years, like a market in real estate that just goes sideways for the next three years. Now, does that mean there's not going to be opportunity in the markets? No, there'll be tons of opportunity, fix and flips, uh, value adds, you know, there always is, there's always opportunity in the real estate market. And frankly, as things go sideways, a lot of the people that just bought to hold, you know, just out of a value hold to have the market go up, uh, they may start to sell off and you might find some slight deals. But frankly speaking, the last thing we want is people to get upside down from an equity standpoint in these homes uh, because that will be, there will be catastrophic uh, impact if that happens. So I agree with Kevin O'Leary, not a huge Kevin O'Leary fan, uh, but I tend to agree with his sentiment on this. All right, so let's move into our money mishaps section. <laughs> I have so much to say about this, like this video. Let me show, let me bring this up. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Hold on. Let me bring this up so you guys can see it. So money mishaps is I'm going to go out and hunt and find just ridiculous misconceptions around money. How about that? That's what this is. And the, it's a mishap because frankly, it's a misinterpretation. So I want to show you guys this. This was a, I mean, it's comical, like what is going on here, but this was an individual who is commenting about student loan. And by the way, this, this is real. Like what he is saying, the facts around this is real. But then his sentiment, I just, I'll give you my kind of uh, my feedback on this. So here we go. Student borrowers all miss their first loan repayments starting up again in October. Nine million, my, me included in that, I didn't pay it. I still have not started paying them back again. Nine million of us just didn't pay our student loans when they kicked in again. And as a result, the big loan companies had to come out and go, okay, well, we're set, like basically saying we're going to be lenient until X date. Like, you know, why? Because this is what happens when we collectively stick together. They, they have to deal with it. Americans just need to get a little better at understanding, like, we have the power. We, we always have had the power. We're just really bad at like at like sticking together and we're really spread out, so it's hard to collectively organize. But just don't like just don't pay them. If they have to, if it's to the point where no one is paying them, you're talking about millions and millions and millions of us. These giant companies that have just been just fine for the past three years without getting our loan repayments, because they don't need them really, are gonna have to just deal with it. They're we're either going to garnish all of our wages, because I guess, I'm going to tell you what, they're not going to want to invest the amount of money it's going to take to put the manpower 
into how much bureaucratic work goes into garnishing wages of literally all of the students that owe money. I'm just saying, stick to your guns. You're one of those nine. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'd have, I had kind of a friend send this uh, to me, um, someone close to me, and I just couldn't help myself. I mean, there's so much misinterpretation around this video and so much nonsense going on. I just wanted to comment on this idea. So uh, loan repayments kicked back in. So during COVID, they paused loan rates. The Biden administration tried to do this massive loan forgiveness thing amidst inflation, right? There's like over $1.5 trillion in student debt that they were trying to forgive. And it was almost the $2 trillion that got us into this inflation mess in the first place. So there's this idea that like money just doesn't have consequences. Like we should just be able to hand out money like we did during COVID and like there's no impact. No. The stimulus checks, all the stuff that we handed out, young and old, had insane impact. Like everyone's poorer. Every Everyone got hit. The lower, especially this young generation, got hurt the most. And now they're asking for more of it. They're asking for more handouts. And it's like, this isn't going to help you. Now, let me break this down a little bit. Those loans are owned by two different groups, the government and private institutions. As a lender, personally, someone who lends, if someone doesn't pay my debt, one of two things are going to happen. One, I'm going to foreclose. I'm going to collect. I'm going to do everything in my power to get that money. Why? Because that's how money works, and it's never stopped working that way. And then two, if for some reason I take a loss, and sometimes that happens, sometimes I make bad investments, I can't get the money, I can't collect, I never lend again to that person. Now, what do you think is going to happen to these institutions if they don't start collecting? Do you think they're just going to willy-nilly want to keep lending, want to keep giving the, like this money away if they're not getting payment? No, it's going to end. And so this might be the end of students getting loans. This might be the nail in the coffin around the ability for students to even pay for college on debt and Frankly speaking, we have the largest we have the largest disengagement. We have the largest exodus in the workforce from this this generation that's talking. When I went to school, I went to school full time and I had a full time job while I was married. So I was doing forty hours a week and going to school full time. That was normal. And yeah, was it hard? Yeah, it was really hard, really difficult. And this concept for this younger generation to want to work is just, it doesn't exist. And a lot of that has to do with what we talked about. This American dream has disappeared for them. Housing affordability, the carrot to go collect assets and have a future, you know, a home, which really, I, I think everyone wants their own place. It's kind of out of reach. And so there's this like concept of like, well, let's stick together and stick it to the man. Well, why don't we all just do that with all of our debt? You know, let's just all stop paying our mortgages and see what happens. You know, if we all stick together and just all stop paying our mortgages, then, uh, you know, they'll just have to let us stay. No, <laughs> clearly, you know, for those of us who were around during 2008 and there was a lot of people who didn't pay. Uh, yeah, it took about a year to maybe 18 months to kick in. But you know what happened? 
they got kicked out. They lost everything they had, and it caused one of the largest housing crashes in the U.S. that we've ever seen. So this is not a solution, uh, and I'm going to call this our money mishaps winner for the week, and we're going to collect them. I'm going to collect them all, and then like at the end of the month, we'll do kind of a money mishap winner for the month. Uh, in terms of who who takes the door prize, in terms of someone who just completely got it wrong. So there's our money mishaps. Let's go into my favorite part of the week, where we're going to go into our trades. We're going to look at the S&P 500, which I'm really excited to share. We are hitting all-time highs. It's projected that next, uh, next week, we may go into an all-time high on the S&P 500. Now, we are just nailing this. And I hope I hope that when I do this technical analysis, you guys are taking really strong notes and making just a fortune behind the scenes uh, week to week as we do this these analyses. But like we nailed this. Here's here's where we were last week. Somewhere in here, we had this support uh, and this nonlinear channel that we've been inside of. And we said, you know, last week, we we're kind of looking at the week going, okay, what's going to happen? We said, well, I think right about here is where we're, and then I'll just zoom in real quick. We're saying, okay, right around here is where we think Monday, Tuesday was going to be. That happened. And we said, okay, after Monday, Tuesday, depending on the news that comes out, we're either going to break towards the upside and then we'll have potential downside. And then after that, you kind of are going to have to reevaluate. However, uh, I had a very bullish opinion. This channel is very strong. And we literally bounced the channel, stayed above the 70 or the 4,700 level on the, the S&P 500 and bounced towards the upside. So where are we today? What's going to happen into next week? I just can't see how we're not still bullish. A lot of analysts are saying this also, that we're probably going to break into the new territories. I think it has to do, like the correlation has to do with rates. It has to do with this rate flattening and rate drops going into next year, people are going to start pulling their money out and already thinking about what the future market price will be based on this money getting pulled out of money market accounts and put back into the stock market and real estate and other investments. And so we're we're trying to project, there's a lot of people on Wall Street trying to project like, okay, how much impact is all that cash going to have in the market and how much more up could it go based on that. And I, I think it's got some room to go. So I'm still pretty bullish on the S&P. We would have to have some major fundamental news, like not technical fundamental next week that would drive this down. But I love this channel. I'm keeping it where it is. We can kind of bring it down a hair. But I, I think this is a, I think we're right on point with this channel. Yeah. Right now, let's talk about where it's going to go. So, if I were to draw this out into next week, this is going to be our zone for sure. It's going to really create some pressure in this spot right here. So, Monday, Tuesday next week, there's just going to be a lot of pressure. I'm going to draw another one here. There's going to be a ton of pressure right here, also. And this is our level that we're fighting, this 48.12, but we're kind of already in this bullish territory for this. So we're kind of in a trade right now, like a time and a place that if I were looking at this, again, not giving financial advice, do you guys' own homework, 
But if I were trading this right now, I would be in a bull bullish trade. I'd be putting my stops below this 4752 level. And I'd be putting my take profits up into the upside here, 4795, just maybe below the 4800 level because I don't like rounded numbers. So like 4794, 93 as an exit. And that is a lot of room to go up, guys. Um, I just don't, if it breaks to the downside, you've got a really tight stop in place right now. But I just, I have a hard time seeing this not happening uh, into early next week. Obviously reassessed by like Wednesday, but the pressure is going to build. And when this pressure builds, it's going to do one of two things. And my guess, uh, my intuition says definitely more towards the upside. Like this is where I would I would project a breakout. There's going to be a lot of pressure when this this ceiling kind of comes in and the pressure like mounts and the price is like kind of like a ping pong ball, like bouncing around really hard. Well, at some point it's going to break out either to the upside or the downside. I'm more bullish because of a lot of the sentiment uh, and fundamentals that I'm aware of right now. Uh, but it's going to fight this level. There's going to be a lot of trades and exits at that all-time high. And so it's going to need a lot of fuel to break through that. Now, if it doesn't do that, it's going to come back into this region and then it's going to want to live kind of in this territory here. I'm going to put this like this. It's going to like break the channel, stay inside of this support and resistance level. I'm going to change the color on this. Now that we're green. Then I'm going to make this bold so that you guys know that I'm more serious about this. I'm more serious about this. And more serious about this for sure. All right, so there's our S&P. Moving into gold, which I love. Gold also, I feel like we nailed. We like really did a great job last week calling into the support. Uh, this is where we were uh, last week, was into this red candle. You can see that we drew in. We had the channel, the upward channel. We're, we're going to make some adjustments to this today. But for Monday and Tuesday, we we nailed this again. We we said, look, at the thick channel was more probable. We had this really tight channel uh, from Friday because this was the... This is where we were, guys, on Friday right here. So this is what we were seeing. We were seeing this. And so we drew in our channel. We got our support and resistance lines. I said, you know, this thick channel is where I would rather be because of the slope. These tight, uh, sharper channels are a little more unpredictable. And so it's more likely we're going to stay in the big one. That's why I made it thick. What happened? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's exactly what happened. We nailed Monday and Tuesday. Obviously, you know, things kind of settled out through Wednesday. We're still kind of in this channel, but uh, we're going to have to adjust for today. So I'm going to kind of make some slight adjustments on this. You can follow along if you're in your charts, get it to kind of match up. Got to do it this way. It's always easier to draw it from scratch than adjust it. There we go. So I'm going to keep this. I'm going to delete this old one. We just don't need this channel anymore. So we're going to delete that. Don't need our old markers. And here we are into the new day. And gold, I am bullish on also. A lot of it has to do with what I just said. 
You get all this money, over a trillion dollars locked up in these money market uh, accounts that are linked to bonds. And as bond returns start to drop and as rates start to go down into next year, people are going to look for other assets to put their money in that are safe, but also better than a 3% return. You know, like a 3% money market account, it doesn't really get people excited. There's something magic about that 5% number. And we just saw that like these three to six month money market accounts. And by the way, if you haven't done that, and you've got money locked up in a checking savings account, those are going away. So go to your local credit credit unions are always the best. Go to your lo local credit union if you've got some cash that just needs to get locked up for six months. So you can at least get that 5%, like super safe. That's, like, that's one of the safest uh, investments out there is like a money market uh, high yield savings account or you know something where you're getting a return around 5% for the next six months. That is going to go away next year. Uh, and I would guess 3% returns after that six months. But here's here's what, here's what we got going on with gold. This range is the moneymaker. This is like between here, between $2,050 to $2,075. So there's like a $25 price gap between gold. I'm bullish. I'm going to extend this actually so that you guys can see it even further going into next week. Sorry. That's why it's so much easier just to redraw these tools. I just want it to extend. I could have done a ray. There you go. So now you've got uh, kind of what the future looks like on this chart. You can take a screenshot of this. That's probably the easiest way to translate it. Take a screenshot and then take it into your own charts. But if you look at this, I want to show you the potentiality of it going up is pretty high, breaking this $2,075 per ounce range. This is like, I just see this happening. I have a really hard time believing that this doesn't uh, live in this range Monday, Tuesday, next week. Being up, definitely bullish. You could set your stops right now below 2053. You take profits somewhere in like the 20, 2068, so 2068. And that's a pretty safe trade. You got more gain than loss. You're inside the trend. You're inside the channel. Uh, this would be kind of a no-brainer uh, trade for me. Now, fundamentally, something could kick off and radically shift this. I just don't see that happening. Even today, it already has tested these price levels. You can see the wick on this. Like, it's already tested. Look at this. It's already tested it, guys. It's right there. So I, I just, I think this is a strong, yeah, I think this is, we really are, have setups for both the S&P 500 and gold. They're both bullish. Uh, check in like Wednesday, obviously, if you're letting a, if you're not putting in a solid stop, uh, cause Wednesday, the technicals are, they could look a little different and fundamentals might screw things up, but I, I like this. I'm not changing this at all. I was trying to look for something maybe bullish. It's possible. Let me, let me do this just as a note. It's possible this could live here on like Thursday, Friday. Let's see, this would be Monday, Tuesday. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Yeah, it's possible here. 
but I just don't see that very likely. So I'm going to make the size smaller. I really think this is where it's going to go. And I really think this is where it's going to go uh, Monday, Tuesday. So I've kind of made them thicker to help you see like where my value is. All right. So there's my gold uh, analysis. You got my S&P 500 analysis. We are heading, by the way, that's just news. We are heading into all-time highs. Let me show you this. Here's the S&P 500 looking back, guys. And you can see we are at an all-time, we are entering all-time high territory. Let's see if we can get it to load real quick. Let's do a weekly. Yeah, we were at, yeah, we are literally entering all-time high territory. Oh, this thing's being weird. Anyways, we're, we're running out of time. You guys got the trades. You got my sentiment, obviously. Do your homework. Stay active in the market. Watch for any news that may throw this off. But more importantly, make sure you got your stop losses in place because that's how you're going to protect your trades. All right, guys. Thanks so much for being on with me uh, this morning. We are, we'll see you same time, same place next week. The show will go on. I know it's uh, the holiday week. Uh, we'll be in between Christmas and New Year's. Have a Merry Christmas. Happy holidays uh, over the next week. Uh, make sure to take some time you know, to really just be present, be intentional, uh, like we talked about with your family, so that you can have the time and the energy to start investing in yourself more than probably you have in the past. So really make sure that you fill that cup up over the next week. And uh, we'll see you same time, same place next week. Thank you.